Hi, Dave Emery here. This is for the record program number 1305, titled, How Groovy Was It Really? This is being recorded on July 12th of the year 2023. Before getting into the main body of the program, uh, do check the Spitfire list dot com website on a regular basis for the very important and expert comments made by intelligent listeners, including and especially our contributing editor Tara Fractal, who posts uh, very important commentary on a regular basis. So please do check SpitfireList.com on a regular basis for the comments. Also, at the top of each written for the record description and at the top of each Food for Thought post, there are a couple of links. One of those links will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts that are being made by sister station WFMU. So if podcasts are the best way for you to consume for the record, and that is increasingly the case here in our world that is subject to the telephone that conquered the world, then WFMU is podcasting the program, and there is a link at the top of each written for the record description and each food for thought post that will enable you to subscribe to the podcast. And there is another link, again, at the top of each written for the record description and each food for thought post that will enable you to pay to obtain the 32 gigabyte flash drive. That is, uh, the, it basically has everything on the SpitfireList.com website, all of my written and recorded work, all of the comments made by intelligent listeners, and a library of old anti-fascist books on easy-to-download PDF files. That flash drive will be updated soon to uh, bring it up to speed. And again, there is a link at the top of each written for the record description and at the top of each food for thought post that will enable you to obtain that flash drive. Uh, I get no money whatsoever from that, which I guess could be seen as proof that my most severe critics are accurate in them uh, when they say that I am out of my mind. Anyway, uh, the title of the program in our last show, we were talking about Albert Hoffman, the Sandoz researcher who is the uh, godfather, so to speak, of LSD. Sandoz, along with Gaiji and uh, Siba, I may be mispronouncing those, was the one of the three companies that was the Swiss component of IG Farben at the time that Albert Hoffman made his famous bicycle ride in 1943. Sandoz was under indictment by the U.S. Department of Justice, as we noted. And also Albert Hoffman had worked for the CIA and apparently helped to cover up a shocking operation in Pont-Saint-Esprit, France, in 1951, in which the population there was was dosed with the LSD and apparently some other things as well. Uh, we're going to... Uh, begin talking about that by bringing our discussion of Pont-Saint-Esprit up to date. We are going to be turning now to uh, the book that we used last week and we'll be using again this evening. It is called A Terrible Mistake, subtitled The Murder of Frank Olson and the CIA's Secret 
Cold War Experiments. It was offered by the brilliant late Hank P. Alberelli Jr., published in hardcover by Prime Day, and copyright 2009 by Hank Alberelli. Hank Alberelli is also the author of uh, Coup in Dallas that we've used uh, a number of times. And it turns out that Frank Olson, who allegedly committed suicide by jumping out of a window, was in fact murdered, and that was because he was, quote, talking out of school. And one of the things he was talking about was the Pont Saint-Esprit operation. And uh, Hank Alberelli went on a years-long quest, uh, joined by members of the Olson family, to find out what had really happened to Frank Olson. Again, the official version is that he jumped out of a window. In fact, he was murdered. He was thrown out of a window to basically shut him up. And Hank Alberelli writes, As long suspected, Frank Olson had indeed been speaking, quote, out of security lines, unquote, as Neil put it, in violation of his security oath with both the Army and the CIA. Specifically, Olson had spoken about the clandestine Eyes-Only SOB project, that Special Operations Division project, called Project SPAN, that had taken place in August of 1951 in Pont-Saint-Esprit, France. This, of course, was the so-called Urgot outbreak, unquote, that caused hundreds of the pounds people, young and old, to become temporarily and terrifyingly insane, causing the deaths of at least four people. Sirocco, that is uh, a uh, prosecutor for cold cases for the uh, New York uh, uh, Attorney General's Department, Sirocco noted that Eric Olson had told him that among his father's old home movies, there was a brief clip of what appeared to be a military crop duster picking off from an unidentified field. Frank Olson himself had shot the film on one of his trips to Europe in the early 1950s. According to Albert and Neil, several weeks before the meeting at Deep Creek Lake, Frank Olson had, quote, broken security, unquote, and talked about the French experiment on at least two occasions. He had been specifically cautioned by Vincent Ruet, RWEP, and Jean Schwab about the, quote, high level of security and sensitivity involving the experiment, unquote. After being firmly cautioned, Olson had again broken security and, quote, spoken out of line, unquote, about Pont Saint-Esprit with several of his colleagues, including, quote, with a neighbor he occasionally carpooled to work with, unquote. The neighbor immediately reported Olson to Camp Defect security officials. As a result of this last indiscretion, the decision was made to interrogate Olson. The question was posed to the two sources. Was this... This incident in France at Pont Saint-Esprit, the, quote, un-American activity, unquote, referred to in the papers given to the Olsons by William Colby. Not surprisingly, the answer was yes, unquote. Was Pont Saint-Esprit solely a special operations division operation? No, it was a pre-Arbichoke joint operation between SOB and CIA security branch. They didn't involve any other intelligence agencies such as the French. Silence. This author questioned three of Olson's former colleagues on the subject of Pont Saint-Esprit, which had occurred, uh, what, uh, basically, uh, this, this author questioned three of Olson's former colleagues on the subject of Pont Saint-Esprit, and skipping down. But other former Camp Dietrich scientists 
Speaking on condition of anonymity, recounted that the Paul Sent Esprit experiment had involved the aerosol spraying of a potent LSD mixture, as well as, quote, the contamination of local food products, unquote. And that is the operation that uh, Albert Hoffman helped to cover up as we looked at last week. And uh, with regard to the 60s, the whole psychedelic period, one of the things that brought this uh, to mind for me again is uh, the fact that Leslie Van Houten, a member of the, uh, quote, Manson family, unquote, was paroled uh, the other day. And... Uh, as we've looked at in uh, both for the record program number 1085, an interview with Tom O'Neill, the author of Chaos, uh, about the Manson family, and also in for the record programs 1163, 1164, and 1165, we took a look at the brilliant research of the heroic Tom O'Neill, who basically uncovered that the Manson family was an intelligence operation, and it was to a large extent cobbled together at the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, which was basically uh, doubled as an intelligence front. As uh, Tom noted when I interviewed him in 2019, that Free Medical Clinic had been in existence for 52 years, but when Chaos was published, it abruptly closed. And uh, we're going to take a look at some of the things that underlay uh, the good times of the 60s and the hate Asbury and the summer of love, etc., etc. And uh, one of the movies that was uh, something of uh, a banner for that period was the movie Easy Rider, starring uh, Peter Fonda and uh, also Dennis Potter. That movie was produced by a guy named Bill Hayward, and Bill Hayward, although it's not clear whether he was given LSD, he too had been an unwitting uh, scientific psychiatric experiment subject by a psychiatrist, Dr. Lawrence Kuby, who had long-standing links to the intelligence community. And uh, in uh, near the end of the book, Frank uh, or uh, Hank Alberelli describes uh, William Hayward. William Hayward also died the year before this book could be completed. Bill was an American icon, the producer of the seminal films Easy Rider and The Hired Hand. I had met Bill, an extremely intelligent and artistic man, after I read a magazine article he had written about his boyhood trials and terrors at the hands of a renowned psychiatrist who had been an OSS and CIA contractor. The experience with this physician and a subsequent involuntary commitment to the manager clinic had done irreparable harm to Bill, the true extent of which I did not fully understand until after his death. Through my conversations with Bill Hayward, I was better able to know the terrible damage that misdirected psychiatry can do to a person. Talking with Bill about my interviews with a number of MKUltra survivors helped me more fully understand what the CIA's and Army's behavior modification, unquote, experiments had done to the people they selected as their unwitting subjects. Bill was able to confirm and substantiate just how horrific it would have been for them. Bill died by his own hand. His act was a terrible and tragic response to the pain 
and the demons he had been fighting all of his adult life as a result of his encounters with CIA-sponsored psychiatry. I know that he sought to drag each and every one of these monsters to their own deaths, and I can only hope that he found true peace in the process. And again, Easy Rider as a, a film was something of a, well, I don't know what you call it, a uh, an icon, a marker of the 1960s. And although, again, a lot of people have a lot of fun, there was a lot of good music made, uh, to this day, the enormous role of the intelligence community in the events uh, surrounding the Summer of Love, LSD, etc., really has not been properly understood. And we're going to turn, once again, to uh, a terrible secret uh, about the death, really the murder of Frank Olson, and we're going to talk about uh, a key figure in the 60s LSD subculture, that is Ken Kesey and his Merry Pranksters. In a, a section of the book called MK Ultra and Ken Kesey's Acid Tests, Hank Alberelli writes as follows. On the less tragic side, a talkative Gittinger also revealed that he and at least two other researchers from the TSS, that's the Technical Services Staff's Chemical Division, had attended as cautious, as curious observers, unquote, Ken Kesey's Trips Festival at the Honda, California, and an acid test, unquote, at San Francisco's Longshoreman Hall. One more time. On the less tragic side, a talkative Gittinger also revealed that he and at least two other CIA researchers from TSS's chemical division had attended as, quote, curious observers, unquote, Ken Kesey's, quote, trips festival, unquote, in the Honda, California, and, unquote, acid test, unquote, at San Francisco's Longshoreman's Hall. The trips festival, unquote, held in 1966, featured what Gittinger called, quote, an oddball mix of music, merriment, and bizarre behavior. The festival had been conceived by Stuart Brand of Whole Earth Catalog fame, Zach Stewart, Ramon Sender, both of the Tate Music Center and the Ann Halpern Dance Company, and Ken Babs of Kesey's Merry Pranksters. Music for the event was provided by Big Brother and the Holding Company, featuring then-unknown Janis Joplin. LSD was liberally distributed by the legendary San Francisco outlaw chemist Owsley Stanley. Stanley described the event, quote, It was completely out of control. Back in those days, we were really rough with LSD. A large dose was really rough. It would be a hell of a jolt for a guy in his late 30s to suddenly come face to face with the universe that way. A few weeks later, Gittinger's two TSS colleagues attended one of the earliest, quote, acid tests, unquote, held outside of San Francisco. The, quote, test, unquote, really a psychedelic party, featured huge bowls of LSD-spiked punch. Nobody had any idea how much of the drug had been added to the mixture of fruit juice and soda. Music was provided by a group called the Warlocks, soon to become the Grateful Dead. Author Ken Kesey, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, described these events, quote, I tried to think of the real origins of this phenomenon, which I c- consider myself to be a large part of. 
one of the people it goes back to, of whom you may not have heard, is George Stern. He was an activist and poet, and he did, quote, happenings, unquote. He and Michael McClure and Allen Ginsberg would do these things in San Francisco. When I first saw them, I thought, quote, this is the new edge of the way entertainment's going to be done. Recalled CIA man Gittinger, once, after these LSD parties became more commonplace, Alfred Cap Hubbard and some doctor, I don't remember his name, tried to attend one event. It was crazy from the start. These two bald-headed, portly guys in dark suits walking into the middle of all this madness. You can imagine that the paranoia count went through the roof as they tried to mingle with the crowd and people began melting away from them. I don't think they were there for more than ten minutes before they headed out the door. At least, when we went to these things, we made an effort to blend into things. Well, uh, again, there is, uh, I think, more research to be done about uh, the Ken Kesey phenomenon. Uh, someone I know who's quite up on that uh, mentioned to me that the the 1939 International Harvester school bus that was used by Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters on their 1964 cross-country jaunt to New York had been obtained for Kesey by the guy who uh, had turned him on to LSD at the, one of the, uh, the uh, VA hospitals at which uh, Ken Kesey was administering some of these drugs. Again, I think the true extent of the intelligence community's involvement with Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters has yet to be properly explored. Uh, uh, Hank Alberelli adds, in connection with this, about the Abramson here is uh, Dr. Harold Abramson, a CIA psychiatrist. In their background review of Abramson, Sirocco and Bibb have learned that in the popular literature on the history of LSD in the United States, Abramson was widely known for having turned on anthropologist Margaret Mead and her husband, Gregory Bateson, to the drug, and that Bateson, in turn, had a hand in introducing writer Ken Kesey to LSD. Bateson, by the way, had been an operative with the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, uh, America's World War II Intelligence Agency, there is a lot of, there was, there has been a lot of networking between OSS veterans and uh, many of their colleagues who had gone to work for the CIA. And then uh, Hank Alberelli goes on to comment, Well before Kesey and Dr. Timothy really became notorious for their, quote, trips, unquote, Abramson throughout the 1950s was well known in select circles for staging almost weekly LSD sorties at his Long Island estate. The gatherings were said to be so popular that guests had to be turned away. And uh, again, it is interesting that uh, ultimately uh, Abramson turned on uh, Margaret Mead and former OSS operative uh, Gregory Bateson, and then Bateson turned on Ken Kesey. More about that in a footnote, or an endnote, I should say. Telephone conversation with Faye and Ken Kesey, June of 1975, Compliments of J.P. Mahoney, Burlington, Vermont. Mahoney also provided the author with details of LSD, mescaline, and isolation tank experiments conducted at the University of Vermont in the early 1970s. The CIA, through front groups, 
the National Institutes of Health and the National Institute of Drug Abuse funded these experiments, which resulted in a fair amount of Sandoz and Lily LSD finding its way into the local community. That is uh, very interesting indeed. Um, one of the CIA researchers, he worked for a number of federal agencies who uh, ran a safe house in San Francisco. He ran another one in Greenwich Village. And he was uh, fairly well-known for surreptitiously dosing people with LSD. It's a guy named George Hunter White. There's a famous quote you may have seen. I can't recite it from memory, but he talks about how delightful it was. Uh, he said, where else could a red-blooded American boy lie, steal, kill, rape, and pillage, all with the blessing of the all-highest? It was fun, fun, fun. And uh, again, one of the ways that uh, George Hunter White had fun, fun, fun was surreptitiously drugging people with LSD. And uh, Liz Evans here is a former aspiring actress and sometime prostitute who worked for George Hunter White. Evans remembers that White, quote, three or four times in his house, dosed people with LSD, quote, just for fun, unquote. She recalls, He gave it to me once, and I hated every minute of it. I told him if he ever did it again, that would be the last time he did it to anyone, unquote. Evans also recalls that White, quote, or someone who worked with him sometime around 1959 or 1960, dosed a, quote, a really pretty blonde-haired waitress at San Francisco's Black Sheep Bar, unquote. Says Evans, quote, her name was Ruth Kelly, and George wanted her to take part in things, but she had no interest. So he or someone he told to dosed her with LSD, unquote. Kelly, who also performed as a singer at the bar, was dosed during one of her singing performances in 1960, according to CIA documents. Evans says, as CIA documents confirm, quote, she merely flipped out during her set, but somehow managed to hold on. After she finished, she ran outside and got a cab to take her to the hospital. A few days later, she was okay. And, uh, although it is not directly related to, uh, LSD in and of itself. Uh, it's also very interesting that that very same George Hunter White, when working for the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, was the guy who busted Billy Holiday in October of 1949 for opium. Ultimately, Billy Holiday's life and career were ruined because of her criminal record. She wasn't able to get a cabaret card, and that was pretty much the end of Lady Day. Although it's not relevant to LSD, it was that very same George Hunter White, one of the pioneering CIA MKUltra Artichoke LSD operatives, who busted Billy Holiday. And in a section called George White and the CIA, Hank Alberelli writes as follows. On January 22nd of 1949, George White made national headlines again, after he kicked open the door to room 203 of San Francisco's Mark Twain Hotel and arrested legendary jazz singer Billy Holiday for possession of opium. Holiday was in the Golden Gate City for a sold-out, month-long engagement at Joe Turner's renowned Cafe Society Uptown in the Fillmore District. 
arrested at the same time of holiday was her manager, John Levy, a brilliant jazz bassist and part owner of a New York nightclub. White claimed that as he entered Holiday's room, accompanied by a San Francisco police detective, he saw the singer, clad only in a nightgown, run into the bathroom clutching a small dark bottle. Chasing across the room, he grabbed the singer just as she smashed the bottle on the open toilet bowl. He then dragged her back into the bedroom, where he ordered her and Levy to get dressed for a trip downtown to police headquarters for booking. There, the two posted a thousand dollars bail and were released pending trial. The next day, a chemical analysis of glass fragments from the broken bottle revealed that it had contained opium. Two weeks later, Holliday was indicted by a grand jury for violation of the local drug laws. And another interesting detail skipping down. It is fascinating to note that before Holiday went on trial, the blues singer had been sent to psychologist Dr. James A. Hamilton, George Hunter White's former OSS truth drug confederate. And again, he was someone who had worked with George Hunter White in attempts at developing a, quote, truth drug, unquote. And that involved LSD, psilocybin, and various things. So again, although it's not relevant to LSD or the, uh, quote, summer of love, unquote. It is very interesting to note that uh, that same George Hunter White was the guy who busted uh, Billy Holiday. And we're going to review some information about uh, aspects of the summer of love. And uh, something that I think is emblematic of what was going on at that time, and that is something called mantra rock. And uh, the discussion on this is uh, from uh, a Wikipedia post on this. Sunday, January 29th, 1967, marked a major spiritual event of the San Francisco hippie era, and Srila Prabhupada, who was ready to go anywhere to spread Krishna consciousness, was there. The Grateful Dead, Moby Grape, Janice Joplin, and Big Brother and the Holding Company, Jefferson Airplane, Quicksilver Messenger Service, all the new wave San Francisco bands had agreed to appear with Srila Prabhupada at the Avalon Ballroom's Mantra Rock Dance, proceeds of which, from which, would go to the local Hare Krishna temple. Thousands of hippies, anticipating an exciting evening, packed the hall. At about 10 p.m., Sri Prabhupada and a small entourage of devotees arrived amid uproarious applause and cheering by a crowd that had waited weeks in great anticipation for this moment. Sri Prabhupada was given a seat of honor on stage and was introduced by Allen Ginsberg, who explained his own realizations about the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra and how it had spread from the small storefront in New York to San Francisco. The chanting started slowly but rhythmically, and little by little it spread throughout the ballroom, enveloping everyone. Hippies got to their feet, held hands, and began to dance as enormous, pulsing pictures of Krishna were projected around the walls of the ballroom in perfect sync with the beat of the mantra. 
By the time Sri Prabhupada stood and began to dance with his arms raised, the crowd was abruptly absorbed in chanting, dancing, and playing musical instruments they had bought for the occasion. As the temple speeded up, the chanting and dancing became more and more intense, spurred on by a stage full of pop-rock musicians who were as charmed by the magic of the Maha Mantra as, their am- as the amateur musicians had been at the Tompkins Square Kirtanas only a few weeks before. The chant rose, it seemed to surge, and swell without limit. When it seemed it could go no further, the chanting stopped. Sri Prabhupada offered prayers to his spiritual master into the microphone and ended by saying three times, quote, All glories to the assembled devotees, unquote. The Haight-Ashbury neighborhood buzzed with talk of the mantra rock dance for weeks afterward. Allen Ginsberg later recalled, quote, We sang Hare Krishna all evening. It was absolutely great, an open thing. It was the height of the Haight-Ashbury spiritual enthusiasm. And in the uh, entry, uh, Mantra Rock Dance in Wikipedia, the participation of countercultural leaders considerably boosted the event's popularity. Among them were the poet Allen Ginsberg, who led the singing of the Hare Krishna Mantra on stage along with Prabhupada, and LSD promoters Timothy Leary and Augustus Owsley Stanley III. In AFA 28, we've spoken at length about Tim, Timothy Leary's uh, inextricable links with the CIA and uh, his uh, efforts in that regard. Uh, one of the things that I think is, is very interesting here, and, and by the way, George Harrison, the late George Harrison of the Beatles, was also very much uh, involved with the Hare Krishna cult and gave them a lot of money. And I don't want to be misunderstood here as claiming that uh, the rock bands, again, the ones that participated, The Grateful Dead, Moby Grape, Janis Joplin and Big Brother and the Holding Company, Jefferson Airplane, Quicksilver Messenger Service, all the new wave San Francisco bands, as, as it calls them. I'm not implying that they were uh, devotees of the ideology of the Hare Krishna cult, but what superficially lies on the surface of the Hare Krishna cult is not what uh, Prabhupada has been putting down, or was putting down, so uh, uh, as they said. Uh, by the way, Tulsi Gabbard, who was uh, at one point the deputy uh, director of the Democratic National Committee, she was a representative from Hawaii, she is a member of the Hare Krishna cult, so are her parents, so uh, was her congressional, so is her husband, and so it was her congressional staff. She has since left the Democratic Party and has now been doing appearances at uh, uh, right-wing events. And again, I don't want to be misunderstood as characterizing the bands or the or the members of those bands as aficionados or adherents to the philosophy I'm, bound, I'm about to discuss. But I do think that they were subject to Orientalism in uh, one of its more severe manifestations. And th- what they did not know was the essence of the ideology that they were helping to support with their efforts. 
And for the record, 891, uh, I laid out the philosophy of the Hare Krishna uh, cult at some length from a book about that. And I'm going to uh, briefly summarize some of the things that uh, the Hare Krishna cult believes. Anyway, and again, all of the uh, appropriate notes will be in the written description for For the Record 1305. And again, there's a good discussion of the Hare Krishna cult in For the Record 891. Hare Krishna founder and chief guru Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada provided commentary on Hindu religious texts. Quote, and often suggested that they had not actually been written by himself, but that God, Krishna, had revealed them to him. This was in order to, quote, underline the absolute position, superhuman qualities, and overall importance of the guru. And in addition, uh, Bhaktivedanta Swami uh, was opposed to democracy. So, monarchy or dictatorship is welcome. Personally, I like this position, dictatorship. Personally, I like this. And uh, he also uh, believed in a bygone mythical age. That's uh, uh, something that many fascist uh, sects believe in. That once upon a time, long ago, everything was wonderful. But then along came those people and, you know, pretty much fill in the blanks. Uh, Popov says, he too believed that in bygone ages, a divine and scientific social system had existed in India and like Bhaktivedanta Saraswati, he too founded a movement whose express mission was to reestablish what he often referred to as the, quote, perfectional form of civilization, unquote, Varnashram Dharma. And uh, note that uh, foreigners or immigrants or migrants are blamed for this degeneration of this pure society long ago. Indian civilization, on the basis of the four foreigners and ashrams, deteriorated because of her dependency on foreigners or those who did not follow the civilization of Varnashram. And next, uh, Prabhupada holds forth on the Kshatriya, the warrior class of the uh, Hindus, and it was also one of the uh, models for the Nazi SS as well, one of the ideological uh, models that they sought uh, to buttress their ideology with. And uh, Prabhupada said, The Kshatriyas should be taught how to fight also. There will be military training. There will be military training how to kill. Kshatriya students in the Iksan Varnashram College were to practice killing. Quote, Just like Kshatriyas, they have to learn how to kill. There is no single instance where Bhaktivedanta Swami speaks about Kshatriya training without mentioning killing. Quote, learn to kill. No nonviolence. Learn to kill. Here also, as soon as you'll find the Kshatriya, a thief, a rogue, an unwanted element in this society, Killing. That's all. Finish. Killing. Boss. Finished. Unquote. It is not that because the Kshatriyas were killing by bows and arrows formally that you have to continue that. That is another foolishness. If you have got, if you can kill easily by guns, take that gun. All the royal princes were trained up how to kill. A Kshatriya, he is expert in the military science how to kill. So the killing art is there. 
You cannot make it null and void by advocating nonviolence. No, that is required. Violence is also a part of the society, unquote. And uh, again, uh, noting that uh, uh, it, it, uh, Harvey, it, uh, basically, uh, another of the points of view of uh, Popov was that basically if the uh, sect could take over uh, previous democratic societies, uh, then that would work out very nicely. Bakhtabadanta also thought that he and his movement could take over some government and rule some part of the world. Quote, however, in Kali Yuga, that's the, 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 the dark times in the uh, Hindu faith, democratic government can be captured by Krishna-conscious people. If this can be done, the general populace can be made, quote, very happy, unquote. And uh, also, uh, Bhaktivedanta Swami spoke about the, quote, Aryans, unquote. Bhaktivedanta Swami, and again quoting from the text, Bhaktivedanta Swami, however, speaks extensively about the Aryans. At least 25 of his purports and over a 100 lectures and conversations contain lengthy elaborations on the topic. He places all those whom he calls, quote, non-Aryan, unquote, in a category similar to his unwanted population, thus dividing humans into two groups, a large group of Varna Sankara and non-Aryans on one side, and a small group of Aryans, i.e. those who follow Varna Shwam on the other, quote, those who traditionally follow these principles are called Aryans, or progressive human beings, unquote. The Vedic way of life, he writes, is the progressive march of civilization of the Aryans, unquote. In the history of the human race, the Aryan family is considered to be the most elevated community in the world. In more than one-fifth of his statements, he clearly describes or defines them in racial terms. The Aryan family is distributed all over the world and is known as, quote, Indo-Aryan. The Aryans are white, but here, this side, due to climatic influence, they are a little tan. Indians are tan, but they are not black. But Aryans are all white, and the non-Aryans, they are called black. Yes, parenthetically, uh, India remains a very racist society, and dark-hued uh, people whose skins have a lot of pigment, a lot of melanin, uh, are viewed as inferior in much of Indian society, even to this day. And, uh, Bhaktivedanta Swami preaches the superiority of Europeans and Americans over the Native Americans, uh, and uh, he basically supports, uh, uh, he views the indigenous people of America as inferior, and uh, basically endorses what uh, the Americans and Europeans did to them. Quoting, So we all belong to the Aryan family. Historical reference is there. Indo-European family. So Aryan stock was on the Central Asia. Some of them migrated to India. Some of them migrated to Europe. And from Europe you have come. So we belong to the Aryan family. But we have lost our knowledge. So we have become non-Aryan practically. You French people, you were also Aryan family. But the culture is lost now. So this Krishna consciousness movement is actually reviving the original Aryan culture. Bharata, B-H-A-R-B-H-A-R-A-P-A. We are all inhabitants 
of Barapavosha, uh, but as we lost our culture, it became divided. So on the whole, the conclusion is that the Aryans spread in Europe also, and the Americans, they also spread from Europe. So the intelligent class of human being, they belong to the Aryans, Aryan family, just like Hitler claimed that he belonged to the Aryan family. Of course, they belonged to the Aryan families, unquote. And that uh, Popov also had good things to say about Hitler. So these English people, they were very expert in making propaganda. They killed Hitler by propaganda. I don't think Hitler was so bad a man. Hitler knew about the atomic bomb, but he was a gentleman. He said that, quote, I can smash the whole world, but I do not use that weapon, unquote. The Germans had already discovered it, but out of humanity, they did not use it. The activities of such men are certainly very great. Therefore, Hitler killed these Jews. They were financing against Germany. Otherwise, he had no enmity with the Jews. Therefore, Hitler decided, kill all the Jews. And more about uh, the Aryan culture and what the uh, Prabhupada believed. Ordinary people, the laborer class, once born the lowest class of men, non-Aryan worker, the black man. He must find out a master, one who has no education, almost animal, just like a dog. By the way, his English is imperfect. And he becomes disturbed, one who is dependent on others. They are ignorant rascals, unclean, equal to the animal, no training, fools, rascals. According to his understanding, People of black or dark skin color, as well as Native Americans, are shudras, S-H-U-D-R-A-S, are third class, degraded, and less intelligent. Quote, shudras have no brain. In America also, the whole America once belonged to the Red Indians. Why, they could not improve. The land was there. Why, these farmers, the Europeans, came and improved. So shudras cannot do this. They cannot make any correction. A first-class Rolls-Royce car, and who was sitting there? A third-class Negro. This is going on. You'll find these things in Europe and America. This is going on. A first-class car and a third-class Negro. And again, the term Shuba, S-H-U-D-R-A, that is a really nasty term. Uh, it's the equivalent of the N-word. And... Uh, he also had some interesting things to say about uh, black Americans. Just like in America, the blacks were slaves. They were under control. And so, since you have given them equal, equal rights, one more time. Just like in America, the blacks were slaves. They were under control. And since you have given them equal rights, they are disturbing, most disturbing, always creating a fearful situation, uncultured and drunkards. What training they have got. That is best to keep them under control as slaves, but give them sufficient food, sufficient cloth, but not more than that. Then they will be satisfied. So the Karatas, they were always slaves of the Aryans. The Aryan people used to keep slaves, but they were treating slaves very nicely, unquote. And that the Karatas were Africans, he had explained many times, Karata means the black, the Africans. And uh, not surprisingly, uh, Prabhupada also had some very choice things to say about women. You'll love this, ladies. Generally, 
All women desire material enjoyment. Women in general should not be trusted. Women are generally not very intelligent. It appears that women is a stumbling block for self-realization. Although rape is not legally allowed, it is a fact that a woman likes a man who is very expert at rape. When a husbandless woman is attacked by an aggressive man, she takes his action to be mercy. Generally, when the woman is attacked by a man, whether her husband or some other man, she enjoys the attack, being too lusty, unquote. Again, that is a really choice uh, uh, philosophy that uh, Bishop Prabhupada, or not Bishop Prabhupada, Jesus, um, <laughs> a sweet Prabhupada is laying down for the faithful. And again, I, would, I, I, I do not want to be misunderstood as accusing uh, the members of those bands of Grateful Dead, the Quicksilver Messenger Service, uh, the Jefferson Airplane, uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company as believing in that. Uh, yet I think that their participation in that event was naive Orientalism at its very worst. And one of those bands that was present at there was the Grateful Dead. And I'm going to review something we've spoken about before, and that is uh, John Perry Barlow. He replaced Robert Hunter as lyricist for the Grateful Dead, and he was a very, very interesting fellow. He was at one point uh, Dick Cheney's campaign manager, uh, voted for George Wallace in 1968, and uh, some of the entries from his Wikipedia page. Weir, that's Robert Weir of the Grateful Dead, and Barlow maintained contact through the years. A frequent visitor to Timothy Leary's facility in Millbrook, New York, Barlow introduced the musical group to Leary in 1967. And again, Leary is, was inextricably linked with the CIA. Back to Barlow. He was engaged to Dr. Cynthia Horner, whom he met in 1993 at the Moscone Center in San Francisco while she was attending a psychiatry conference and Barlow was participating in a Steve Jobs comedy roast and at a convention for the next computer. She died unexpectedly in 1994 while asleep on a flight from Los Angeles to New York days before her 30th birthday from a heart arrhythmia apparently caused by undetected viral cardiomyopathy. And again, the mortality rate around John Perry Barlow is quite high. Speaking of which, Barlow had been a good friend of John F. Kennedy Jr. ever since his mother, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, had made arrangements for her son to be a wrangler at the Bar Cross Ranch for six months in 1978, and later the two men went on many double dates in New York City with Kennedy's then-girlfriend, Daryl Hannah, and Cynthia. Uh, in Fortunate Son Part 1, we spoke about uh, the murder of John F. Kennedy Jr., uh, and his plane crash was not uh, happenstance. I, we really don't have time to go into details here, uh, but he was uh, already being kicked around as a possible vice presidential candidate for Al Gore in the 2000 election, and he was also evidencing some interest in his father's murder. Uh, Jackie Onassis had uh, told him, you know, do not look into your father's killing and don't get into politics, and he was dis uh, basically straying from both when his plane went down. And again, Fortunate Son, Part 1, I'll put in a link 
in the description for this program for that uh, that before the record program. More about uh, John Perry Barlow. Again, the lyricist for the Grateful Dead. Barlow is a former chairman of the Sublet County Republican Party and served as Western Wyoming campaign coordinator for Dick Cheney during his 1978 congressional campaign. And uh, he goes on to uh, discuss all my presidential votes, whether for George Wallace, Dick Gregory, or John Hagelin, have been protest votes. And uh, uh, one of the things that's very interesting is that John Perry Barlow served as the vice chairman of the Electronic Freedom, uh, Electronic, um, Electronic of Freedom Foundation's board of directors. Now, the EFF is an internet security or internet freedom advocacy group, and many of the people involved with it are genuinely sincere and believe in internet freedom. However, it has also uh, maintained some very close connections with CIA derivatives like uh, Radio Free Asia and the Open Technology Fund and uh, people associated with Julian Assange, like uh, Jacob Applebaum, we've spoken about that in our long series about Surveillance Valley by Yasha Levine, one of the most important books ever written. And uh, John Perry Barlow was a very interesting fellow. Uh, there was a Forbes magazine article published in October of 2002 specifically. It's called Why Spy by John Perry Barlow from Forbes magazine of October 7th of 2002, and it talks about uh, his interactions with the intelligence community, and I'm going to excerpt a segment of the article, and it, it looks very much as though John Perry Barlow helped to initiate the intelligence community's interest in social media. Quote, let's create a process of information digestion in which inexpensive data are gathered from largely open sources and condensed through an open process into knowledge terse and insightful enough to inspire wisdom in our leaders. The entity I envision will be small, highly networked, and generally visible. It will be open to information from all available sources and would classify only information that arrived classified. It would rely heavily on the internet, public media, the academic press, and an informal worldwide network of volunteers, a kind of global neighborhood watch that would submit on-the-ground reports. It would use off-the-shelf technology and use it less for gathering data than for collating and communicating them. Being off-the-shelf, it could deploy tools while they were still state-of-the-art. I imagine this entity staff initially with librarians, journalists, linguists, scientists, technologists, philosophers, sociologists, cultural historians, theologians, economists, philosophers, and artists, a lot like the original CIA, the OSS under Wild Bill Donovan. Its budget would be under the direct authority of the president, acting through the National Security Advisor. Congressional oversight would reside in the Committees on Science and Technology and not under the Congressional Joint Committee on Intelligence. 
And again, he was deeply involved with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And again, I don't want to uh, be misunderstood as characterizing everybody or even most of the people involved with it as being somehow tainted or sinister, but there certainly are some documented intelligence connections to it. And although they are noted for espousing Internet freedom, in fact, uh, they have some very interesting connections to things like the Open Technology Fund and uh, some of the intelligence communities, uh, Internet activities. As we looked at in our series of programs about Surveillance Valley, for the record, 1,075 to 1,081. And some excerpts from this article. And again, uh, ask yourself if this guy's really... Uh, the deadhead uh, that we are told he was. He's passed away now. From Why Spy by John Perry Barlow from Forbes magazine, October 7th of 2002. If the spooks can't analyze their own data, why call it intelligence? And he talks about, um, anyway, let's skip him down. In the interest of time here. For more than a year now, there's been a deluge of stories and op-ed pieces about the failure of the American intelligence community to detect or prevent the September 11, 2001 massacre. Well, there's a whole lot more to it than that. Uh, skipping down. I was introduced to this world by a former spy named Robert Steele, who called me in the fall of 1992 and asked me to speak at a Washington conference that would, quote, be attended primarily by intelligence professionals, unquote. Steele seemed interesting if unsettling. A former Marine intelligence officer, Steele moved to the CIA and served three overseas tours in clandestine intelligence, at least one of them, quote, in a combat environment, unquote, in Central America. And he talks about networking with this guy and uh, skipping down. A few weeks later, in early 1993, I passed through the gates of the CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, and entered a chilled silence, a zone of paralytic paranoia and obsessive secrecy, and a technological time capsule straight out of the early 60s. The Cold War was officially over, but it seemed the news had yet to penetrate where I found myself. I'm speaking about attempts at uh, uh, convincing the CIA to uh, update themselves. In May of 2000, I began to understand what they were up against. I was invited to speak to the Intelligence Community Collaboration Conference, a title that contained at least four ironies. The other primary speaker was Air Force Lieutenant General Mike Hayden, the newly appointed director of the NSA. He said he felt powerless, though he was determined not to remain that way. Quote, I had been on the job for a while before I realized that I had no staff, unquote, he complained. Everything the agency does have been pushed down into the components. It's all being managed several levels below me, unquote. In other words, the NSA had developed an immune system against external intervention. Skipping down again. Like the CIA I encountered, Hayden's NSA was also a lot like the Soviet Union, secretive unto itself, sullen and grossly inefficient. The NSA was also, by his account, as technologically maladroit as its rival in Langley. Hayden wondered, for example, why the director of that was supposedly one of the most of what was supposedly one of the most sophisticated agencies in the world would have four phones on his desk. 
direct electronic contact between him and the consumers of his information, namely the president and national security staff, were virtually nil. There were, he said, thousands of unlinked, internally generated operating systems made inside the... uh, One more time. There were, he said, thousands of unlinked, internally generated operating systems inside the NSA incapable of exchanging information with one another. And again, um, I think it's extremely unlikely that uh, a, a, a freewheeling quasi-acid head like John Perry Barlow would have been invited to help uh, update the technology of the intelligence community unless he was already associated with the intelligence community. And again, with regard to the uh, psychedelic 60s, the hate after, etc. Uh, certainly, again, a lot of people have a lot of fun. There was a lot of good music made, but a lot of people wound up uh, with criminal records. They wound up in uh, psychiatric institutions with a lot of suicides. And I think the true history of that period has yet to be properly understood or recorded. I recall hearing way back, I think it was like in 1979, on an album-oriented rock station that a declassified FBI memorandum spoke of surveillance of Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, and Jim Morrison, and uh, suggested that if they began uh, to become active along with the anti-war movement and the black power movement, etc., they might become threats. Nothing more to it than that. Uh, that memo, at least what was read on the radio. I would note that within roughly 18 months of that memo, it was in the fall of 1969, all three of them were dead. So who knows? Anyway, uh, this wraps up this program. Again, uh, there, I will have links for the various uh, sources that I have accessed, including uh, the text with the information about the Hare Krishna cult. Again, there's good discussion of that in For the Record 891, and uh, we will talk about that. Uh, please, again, be aware of the, the do visit the spitfirelist.com website on a regular basis for the comments made by Parafractal and other expert listeners, and also... Uh, do check out the links at the top of each written for the record description and each food for thought post, one of which will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts that are made by Sister Station WFNU. So if podcasts are the best way for you to consume the program, that is a way to do it. And also there is a link at the top of each written for the record description and each food for thought post that will enable you to obtain the, the 32 gigabyte flash drive with my entire life's, life's work on it printed and audio, and also a small library of old anti-fascist books. And they get no money whatsoever from that. This concludes for the record program number 1305. How groovy was it really? This is being recorded on July 12th of the year 2023. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun. <laughs>